This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, I'm ST Sports Correspondent Azadi Abdulaziz and welcome to A Game of Two Halves, The Straits Times weekly sports podcast that is out every Tuesday. I'm here today with my guests, uh, Assistant Sports Editor Rohit Brishnath, Sports Correspondent David Lee and Sports Reporter Kimberly Quack. How is everyone today? Yeah, good to be here. A little tired after the Rafa match, but happy. Good to be back. Hi, good to be here. Hey, Rohit, let's start with the US Open, which you woke up at 4am for. Was it? Was, was I, am I right? I wake up at any time for Rafa. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he, he, he triumphed again, of course, uh, after beating uh, Daniel Medvedev uh, in the final. Um, you know, obviously, uh, as with Rafa, it always is uh, a slog. It's, it's a... It's a you know, a test of, of his, his will and his ability. Uh, is that what you, you feel makes, uh, you know, Rafa's victories that much more fascinating and, and appealing? Yeah, but I think, of course, here he shouldn't have let that happen. I mean, he won the first two sets and he was cruising. And, of course, Medvedev played very well. I think Rafa may have got a little nervous. Then he got to 5-2 in the fifth set and then Medvedev came back. And I think that the appeal with Rafa is that you know he's going to fight. You've seen him fight, and it's still incredible to watch him fight. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, in 32 years of uh, sports writing, I have ever seen, and I'm not exaggerating, I've never seen a competitor like him. He just doesn't leave any ball at any point. It could be the first point of a, of a, of a Grand Slam tournament, the first round, and it can be the last point, you know, of a final, you know, he... He, he just endures, you know, he, there's, there's something remarkable about him. And, and if you consider, and you know, I think people also have to consider that we were, so many of us were wrong about Rafa. Mm. Because we all thought, you know, oh my God, this grinding style of play that he, that, that, that he, that he prefers, he's never going to last. His knees can't hold. And, you know, he used to keep taking breaks and used to miss Grand Slam tournaments because he was in pain. Mm. But he's still going. I mean, he's 33, you know, and he's still going and he's still winning and he's on 19 slams, uh, one shot of Federer's 20. Remarkable. Uh, but you say, you, you know, he shouldn't have let it happen. You rather he, he win 3-0 three, three uh, and, and, you know, be, be a boring final and, you know, or, or the manner of his <laughs> no, victory no, no, no. I mean, I, his legend, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the sense that you always want to see a great match, you know. Yeah. And I think this Medvedev is a really interesting guy. A very, uh, he's very interesting because he's a very funny looking guy. Doesn't look like an athlete. Yep. Moves incredibly fast. Mm. Um, his, you know, forehand, you know, people, I'm sure you can technically pick it apart, but, you know, he does fantastic things with it. And he came back. I mean, to to come back after being two sets two down sets to down, Nadal yeah. speaks a lot of Medvedev as well. Mm. So that's amazing. And and you mentioned, you know, he's now one slam away from, from Federer. At one point, it looked like the gap was, was you know... Um, insurmountable. Insurmountable, yeah. But, but, you know, now he's just one away. Again, I, I think I've posed this question to you before on this podcast. But do you think first, you know, firstly, do you think he will, you know, surpass Roger? And, and number two, will that make him... You know, the greatest tennis player of, of his generation. So, I think basically, uh, I would say uh, most people's opinion, certainly my opinion is that in the end, I think Djokovic will have the most. He's the youngest and he's uh, probably in physically better shape than uh, Federer, of course, who's 38 and uh, Djokovic is 32. And uh, Djokovic has 16 slams at the moment. So, I think he will overtake them all. You know, the greatest is a funny thing. You know, it's the greatest has been reduced to one number. The mm. number of slams that you win. Now, I can have a long, long, you know, like one hour argument about that, right? 
so the but the thing is that I think we all come from different schools. Some people like the artist Federer, some people like the warrior Nadal, some people like uh, Djokovic, who's more like an engineer and a very brilliant engineer. So I think you know it, it's it's different styles. There are I think we're just lucky to have all three of them together. And and that, that you know I guess brings me to the next question, which is you know I I saw this tweet uh, floating around um, the other day, which is you know the the, the men's game is still waiting. Uh, for a player that was born in the 1990s, where whereas the women's game has already seen um, a, a, a winner, a Grand Slam winner, won this millennium. So, you know, what what do you think is this is down to? It is it, uh, you know, it, it, I I just no, I think it's quite simple in a way. These three guys are just that's too good. Are too good. I don't think anybody is ever. You know, when I was starting out as a young writer. Uh, uh, the age that Kimberly is now, and you know, I I went to Wimbledon and I was watching Becker and Edberg, and you know, man, these were the greatest players in the world. Edberg won six, Becker won six, mm. and Lendl won eight. So how much is that? Put it together, six and six, twelve, no, twenty, right? Quick, quick math. Twenty. Federer alone has twenty, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. these guys together have fifty-five. Yeah. They won fifty-five of the last sixty-six. I mean, I'm never. I'm telling you, in my lifetime. Right, I'm 56. I'm never going to see this again. So for me, I will wake up and watch them all the time because it is history. But do you, do you think it's surprising because everybody talks about the speed and the power in the yeah. men's game, and, and yet the aging players are the ones that are, are winning most? Uh, is that uh, a, a bit of a? I think in a way, actually, you need to. I think the old days when Boris Becker won at 17 never going to happen again. You know, because players are just not physically strong enough uh, in their teenage years. You need to go on tour and play a little bit while and maybe in your mid-twenties, right? But these guys are in their early thirties. Some of them, Federer, of course, is 38. But they are physically really strong. They take incredibly good care of their body, right? They rest, they eat well, they do all that stuff. They, they're calm. I think they're all pretty calm guys or whatever. And they lean brilliantly as Nadal did last night on their experience. They don't panic. They've been there. They know how to win, you know? These guys... And I think for a lot of these young guys, they beat one guy at the tournament and then they suddenly have to play the next guy. Very difficult to play them back-to-back. Like uh, uh, Stefano Sissipas beat uh, Federer in the Australian Open and uh, his gift in the next round was Nadal. He, I think he won six games. So, you know, that's that stuff. So, uh, if you were to look into your crystal ball, um, who would be the next... Um, Young, youngish player, I guess, in the men's game to to come out. You mentioned Sitsipas, Medvedev, of course, reached the final um, of the U.S. Open. You know, is, is there one player that that for, for you stands out as you know? Probably so if the you next ask best? me, if you ask me in January, I'd say Sitsipas because you know <laughs> he played so well against Federer. You know, he has an all-court game. He serves in volleys. He, he's a good athlete. Runs beautifully. He's got a big serve. Now I'm looking at Medvedev and I'm thinking, okay, this guy also can do anything. Mm. You know, he's also got a big serve. Also played servant volley at certain times. You know, he was tactically, he was smart. Um, he wasn't scared. He could play many shots and he's got a good backhand and forehand. So I can't say. But I would say one of these two guys. At one time there was even Zverev as well, right? Yeah, Zverev. There's Dominic Thiem, you know, yeah. there's Denis Shapovalov. Uh, I don't usually get his name right. Sorry <laughs> about that. And uh, so there are young guys out there, but you know, it's as you can see from these old guys, they don't, they're not going to go easily. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series, A Game of Two Halves, on Apple or Google Podcasts, or even on Spotify. Like it and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with uh, Rohit, David and Kim. Uh, Kim, on uh, Sunday night, you spoke to Jonathan Chan, our national diver, who became the first Singaporean to qualify 
um, for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and, and the first diver, in fact, uh, in history uh, from Singapore to, to qualify for the Olympics. Um, you know, how significant uh, was his achievement? Yeah, it's really quite remarkable if you think about it because, you know, he's the first athlete from Singapore and also, like you mentioned, the first diver ever to qualify for the Olympics. And so if you look at it, I guess um, it's quite significant because it's only been 10 years since the Singapore Swimming Association introduced the diving program. And, you know, they've managed to achieve what they've, they wanted to, which was to have somebody qualify for the Olympics. Is it like earlier than expected? Yeah, so I think that's, yeah. And uh, actually, when I was speaking to Jonathan yesterday, he was saying that actually they had not intended to qualify for the Olympics in this particular meet. This was actually just to prepare themselves for like future meets. And the target was actually to qualify for the Olympics at next April's uh, FINA Diving World Cup. This was still sinking in for him. You know, he couldn't really believe what mm-hmm. had happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of, of course, for, for our listeners who uh, may not have been caught up on the news, uh, Jonathan, he competed in the 8th Asian Diving Cup where he won gold in the men's 10-meter platform um, at the Bukit Jalil National Aquatic Centre. And that's how he booked his place uh, in Tokyo. And, you know, for, for a 22-year-old uh, to, you know, I guess surpass expectations and, and be a trailblazer, uh, like he has must be fantastic right I think it's a sign of uh, maturity and the confidence of both uh, the association and the athlete himself that they are they are going for more difficult jumps um, you know high, higher level dives and all that uh, previously we might not even have a chance to, to qualify because the, the attempts uh, of a lower level dives uh, which means we, we can ne- never get to maybe the level of points uh, the Malaysians or the Chinese do. But now we're competing on almost the same level on them uh, as them. Maybe we are not as polished as them, but it shows the, the kind of improvements that we have made over the years. But what is interesting, uh, Kim, I think I read in your report that, and tell me a little bit about it, is that he didn't look at the scores of his dives, apparently. Yeah, he didn't. Because uh, for him, looking at the scores gave him would have given him more pressure so I think that was something that he he has been trying to do recently, just focus on his dives as you know, and do try to do his best with each dive, yeah, without putting unnecessary pressure on himself. Yeah, yeah I think that coaches like that, you know, focus on the process, don't focus on the outcome, stuff like that, yeah. which is good. But I think that's really good. That means he was really into his dives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. So from the Olympics, we turn our attention to the World Cup qualifiers in football, where uh, Singapore. Uh, have two qualifiers uh, in this international break against Yemen and, and Palestine. At the time of this recording, we are yet to play Palestine, but uh, the Lions certainly showed uh, a newfound attacking verve uh, against Yemen, where, where they drew 2-2, of course, with a team that's ranked 20 places higher than them in the world ranking. Uh, Dave, you covered the game. Uh, you know What was your takeaway? The Yemen coach spoke after the match and said he was surprised at how Singapore played. He must have done his homework, you know, how, how Singapore <laughs> played in the past. Yeah. And I think many many among the 7,000 fans who, who turned up were surprised as well. You know, f- from the kickoff, we pressed high, uh, we, we tried to a- attack down the flanks. Yeah. Sometimes we did that I- in previous games, but now we have bodies in the box. Yeah. You know, previously we might have just a Cairo Amri, or uh, even before maybe Alexander Durić uh, to, to go for the headers, but... Now it seems like the front three, they know what to do. They know how to penetrate into the box and, and attack crosses. So I found that quite refreshing. 
Yeah, and and uh, you know, I think the performance as a whole uh, was encouraging. But I think particularly that opening twenty minutes, I, I would go so far as to say that it's the best twenty minute spell I've seen of the national team in at least the last three years. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's a shame that uh, they couldn't get the opening goal in they the first twenty twenty minutes. They could have been three, three nil, nil up, right? Yeah, 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 so yeah. Like like Coach uh, Yoshida said, they could have been three nil up. So that that is something they can still work on uh, their finishing. But of course. Uh, they have to create chances before they can finish, right? So that's a- at least the encouraging part. And and how do you think, uh, you know, the fans um, will take or, or have taken to to, you know, this new style of play? Because you know, in the past, the Lions were known to be obdurate, you know, trying to be uh, defensive, trying to set out stall to to prevent goals rather than score them. Uh, and here we are against you know a higher rank Middle Eastern team and. You know, Haris Harun and Shadan Sulaiman, our two midfielders, were were pressing them at the edge of their box uh, in the first twenty minutes. Do you think that will sort of uh, translate into you know fans coming back to stadiums? Uh, I will still urge patience. Of course, fans have to be. The fans are knowledgeable these days. Where, where they know a good performance when they see one. So I, I think it was encouraging as well to see the fans uh, continue to cheer on uh, the Lions even when they were down. Uh, but I think we still have work to do in terms of fitness. It's not easy to to play a high pressing game for for the full ninety minutes. They are trying, uh, they are encouraging signs. But uh, we have to give them time. Of course, when we play stronger opponents, maybe like we play Palestine, who are sixty rungs higher, uh, we might not be able to play the style that we want. So we have to be practical as well. So I, I think, but at least it, it's a it's a good start for Yoshida in his first uh, competitive game in charge. And on that note, there's the final whistle bringing to a close a game of two halves. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.